You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. For those of you who aren't familiar with USIP, we're a national, independent, and nonpartisan institute that's uh, fully funded by Congress and dedicated to the goal of mitigating, preventing, and resolving violent conflict. Today's event will examine the impact of the novel coronavirus on North Korea and what this means for security in the region. So much of crisis response depends on having timely and accurate information, but that's precisely the problem with North Korea. Due to the North Korean government's lack of transparency and accurate reporting, our information is oftentimes limited to uh, organizations on the ground, particularly South Korean organizations that have sources in North Korea, as well as what we can piece together uh, from those who have experience with epidemics, uh, experience with North Korea's healthcare system, and North Korea's responses to past crises like Ebola and SARS. We do know that North Korea has responded quickly to COVID-19, including a ban on all foreign tourists uh, starting on January 21st of this year which is around the same time that the United States and South Korea uh, have uh, announced their first infections. In addition, North Korea has been implementing very robust quarantines, uh, social distancing, and public education efforts. But still, given North Korea's proximity to virus hotspots uh, like China and the under-resourced state of uh, its healthcare infrastructure, the potential for a significant crisis remains. So to gain further insight into this topic, we have assembled a fantastic uh, group of five speakers who will address a range of issues related to COVID-19 in North Korea. And let me introduce each of them very briefly and what they'll be covering. So first we have Keith Luce, who's the executive director of the National Committee on North Korea. NCNK has done an excellent job in tracking the COVID situation in North Korea, and Keith will provide a broad overview of the situation. Uh, next, we have Dr. Key Park, who's a lecturer on global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also the director of the North Korea program for the Korean American Medical Association. He's been to North Korea numerous times on medical and humanitarian visits, and he'll provide greater insights into North Korea's healthcare system and its ability to address the coronavirus. Then we have Scott Snyder, who's senior fellow for Korea Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He'll provide his thoughts on how COVID has reinforced North Korea's isolation and what this might mean uh, in relation to the broader pressure campaign against North Korea. Next is Dave Maxwell, who's senior fellow uh, at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, as well as a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Army. He'll share his thinking on the potential for COVID-related instability in North Korea and the need to maintain vigilance uh, regarding the instability indicators. And then last, we have Jessica Lee, who is a senior research fellow at the uh, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, she'll address the potential for providing sanctions relief to North Korea to aid in the COVID response efforts and perhaps even to spur diplomacy. Each panelist will have about five minutes to speak and then we'll shift to a Q&A session. For those of you who are watching online, uh, I want to note that uh, we'll be taking questions uh, throughout the webcast. So if you have a question, please log on uh, to YouTube and type in your question in the chat box um, and make sure that you identify your name as well as your affiliation. 
And then when the panelists have finished speaking, which should be around the half hour mark, uh, we'll start addressing the questions then. So with that being said, let me turn it over to Keith to provide an overview of the COVID situation in North Korea. Thank you, Frank. And thanks to the U.S. Institute of Peace for hosting this event. Frank, as you noted uh, last January, as the COVID-19 situation intensified uh, in China, North Korea began implementing a series of steps <clears throat> throughout January into February, uh, steps that include today, that extend into today, including a border closure, uh, including quarantine measures, uh, quarantine measures on visitors coming into the country, quarantine measures related to Pyongyang, uh, related to the expat community, uh, a very uh, serious uh, series of actions in terms of making certain that people that the, that the virus was prevented from coming into North Korea, and if, if it were to enter, that would not spread throughout the population. North Korea also announced uh, a state of emergency, uh, activating anti-epidemic measures, and it reported in January that it was working closely with the uh, World Health Organization uh, related to uh, the potential for pandemic in the country. But as Frank alluded, there are many questions uh, that we have today regarding COVID-19 and North Korea. We really don't know the status of the situation in the country. We do know there are humanitarian consequences resulting from the border closure, uh, resulting from internal restrictions on travel uh, and movement. For example, the spring planting season uh, is being impacted. Seeds being held up at the border in Dandong and with the internal travel restrictions, it's difficult for workers, farmers, and so on to move around uh, to proceed with planting as they would normally. Also, international NGO representatives need to be able to re-enter the country in a timely way uh, to implement their programming and to ensure monitoring. Despite the pandemic, at least outside of North Korea, North Korean, North Korean officials continue to maintain a, a business-as-usual posture. One notable example being the construction of a major new hospital, uh, a project that will not allow for social distancing. Um, and this reflects an air of confidence on the part of the leadership uh, that they have the situation under control. At the same time, as we witnessed over the weekend, uh, there was a frank acknowledgement of the COVID-19 threat by the Politburo meeting and the need for additional action. But at this juncture, as we review COVID-19 in North Korea, there are four points of particular interest that come to mind for me. Number one, perhaps as another example of confidence, North Korea will not accept offers of assistance from US NGOs related to COVID-19. However, the North does continue to work with those same NGOs to receive assistance in those areas where previous collaboration existed, such as tuberculosis, malaria, digging wells, and so on. Uh, point two, it's my understanding that President Trump's offer of assistance to North Korea still stands. Point three, meetings are now underway between officials of the UN and the ministries of public health and foreign affairs in Pyongyang on a range of topics. For example, the timely entry of humanitarian supplies into uh, North Korea, the establishment of protocols that would allow for seed, for other supplies to move into the country uh, more timely. And then there's the issue of personnel. Uh, presently, the United Nations in Pyongyang is operating 
at about 25% of capacity. I think that there are 12 people or so on the ground there. Uh, this is one of those areas where the UN is quite concerned, not only in terms of getting their people in and out, but also to discuss the entry into North Korea of other international workers. Point four, some aid shipments from the international community are making their way into North Korea by boat and by way of the Dandong uh, point, port of in, point of entry. Reportedly about 10% of normal ship traffic has resumed as has about 10% of cargo traffic by land. And remember that all cargo going into the country is subject uh, to quarantine upon arrival. In conclusion, uh, the international community has some information about COVID-19 in North Korea, but not a lot. The battle with this virus, as we all know, it's not a sprint with a predetermined route and known finish line. It's a journey. So we in the international community, I think, must be careful about drawing conclusions today uh, regarding the situation in North Korea uh, based upon our present knowledge and assumptions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Keith, uh, for that succinct summary. Uh, now we'll go to Dr. Park uh, to provide some finer details on uh, the health system in North Korea. Uh, thank you, Frank uh, and USIP for inviting me. <clears throat> so the, the real question out right now is, do they or do they not have COVID-19 in North Korea, right? That's the question. Well, just about every news article on COVID-19 in North Korea, they temper North Korea's claims that there are no COVID-19 cases within their borders with something like, quote, contrary to what experts believe. <clears throat> or they'll actually include direct quotes, for example, uh, General Robert Abrams, the top U.S. general uh, in South Korea, he's been quoted as saying, quote, this is an impossible claim based on all of our intel, unquote. Well, my research team, we've been looking at this a little bit more closely. And um, I can tell you that uh, the naysayers, and that includes me, by the way, uh, should not be so confident. So here's what we know. <clears throat> North Korea canceled all their flights. Uh, to and from China, close its borders with China and quarantine foreigners and also uh, North Korean nationals who are returning from overseas trips. Mm -hmm. And the key is when they did this national lockdown, they did this in late January, about the same time the Chinese locked down Wuhan and the Hubei province. In fact, some of the measures actually preceded the, the Hubei uh, lockdown. They didn't wait until they were starting to see actual deaths from COVID cases inside North Korea. The next country outside of North Korea to actually impose a nation nationwide lockdown is actually Italy. And they did that in uh, uh, March 9th. And this was actually full six weeks after North Korea locked down their borders. And the Italians did it after thousands of people have already died inside Italy. So, we also need to remember how aggressive China was uh, uh, in containing the epidemic. The two provinces that bordered North Korea actually had very few cases to begin with, and they were quickly identified and contained. Liaoning had 145 total cases with two total deaths, and Jilin province had 100 cases total and had one death, and they were rapidly contained, as I mentioned. I think the mitigation measures that the Chinese have applied, which are very aggressive, they were very successful. 
And we know that because of the curve, right? They're well behind the, the, the peak. And now they're relaxing some of their lockdown measures in Hubei province after two months. So in my assessment, the risk of the novel coronavirus entering through the 880 miles of shared border between China and North Korea, I think the risk is not as high as we thought they were. I think the North Koreans succeeded in flattening the curve and I would uh, say that maybe completely squashed it. The North Koreans also value their economy just like any other country, right? So they wanna open up their, uh, their uh, open up for business as soon as they're, they're, they, they can. And we're dealing with that in the US now, but they will not take any unnecessary risks and let their guard down too soon. Remember, they stopped all tourism and the Chinese border, which they depend on the, for most of their trade uh, 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 completely. This was an expensive decision. The fact that they're now allowing foreigners to roam around streets of Pyongyang, allowing them to meet with their interlocutors and reopen Nampo, uh, the, the, the port of Nampo for, uh, for, for shipping lanes. And just we, we just heard that the 14th People's a Supreme People's Assembly was held. These are indications that the country feels uh, confident enough that, that uh, to start to relax some of their mitigation measures. So uh, I believe it's possible and perhaps probable that North Korea was successful in preventing the COVID-19 virus from entering its borders. So at this point, it would be logical to ask, does North Korea actually have the capacity to test for COVID-19? Maybe they have it, but they've just been able not be able to detect it or confirm it. The answer is they do. They do have the capacity. They have the machines to run the tests, and they've been provided with the diagnostic test kits from both China and Russia. So they have it, and they're actually doing the diagnostic testing. Now, that's the good news, but the story is not over yet, right? So that I'm sure they're relieved to see the Chinese contain the COVID-19 epidemic very quickly, which they share a border. But the fact is we have a raging pandemic at the moment. And I think this has re-heightened their fears of the virus uh, threat that it can continue to still enter their borders. The Politburo, which just met last weekend, like it's, as Keith mentioned, here's what they put out as a statement in the resolution. Quote, let's call, they're calling for consistently taking strict national countermeasures to thoroughly check the inroads of the virus in the light of the steady spread of the worldwide epidemic disease, unquote. So I think we can expect to see continued vigorous screening and mandatory quarantine for visitors for, so for some time to come. Now let's talk a little bit about what would happen if an outbreak were actually to occur inside North Korea. The health system, as most of you know, is, is fragile and weak, and they're only able to treat a, a, only a handful of critically ill patients. So according to some of these estimates that we've been collecting these numbers, the total number of hospital beds in North Korea, it's a big range, is between 31,000 and 330,000. In low-income countries where North Korea is, is one of them, the proportion of ICU beds, the critical care unit beds, the total number of beds is about 1.6%. So this translates to about 500 to 5,000 maximum ICU beds in North Korea. And I can tell you, Having worked in some of these top hospitals over the last 13 years in North Korea, my guess is towards the smaller estimate. And I would be very surprised if the total number of ventilators in the country exceeds 50. This is just a, my personal guess. 
So in a worst case scenario, there was a modeling study done by the Imperial College people. They do all the uh, uh, pandemic modeling and they actually included North Korea in their analysis. So assuming each infected person with COVID-19 infects three more people, and if there was no mitigation measures applied, which is not realistic, but if the worst case scenario, the total number of deaths in North Korea could exceed 150,000 people. And they would need at somewhere between uh, 800,000 hospital beds and 200,000 ICU beds. It would, it would totally exceed their capacity, right? However, more realistically is that they will apply aggressive mitigation measures and assuming their mitigation measures are able to reduce transmission by 75% and they apply these measures aggressively early on when there's less than 50 total deaths from COVID-19, the number of deaths as a result of an outbreak inside North Korea could be reduced to about 7,000 uh, deaths. And then as for uh, the demands for beds, about 13,000 hospital beds and about 2,500 ICU beds, which is within the, 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 the capacity of North Korean uh, health system. So based on these predictions, I think it will still be worthwhile for North Korea to increase their treatment capacity by building out more ICU beds and procuring crucial pieces of equipment like oxygen concentrators and ventilators, et cetera. But more critical and effective is for North Korea to continue to apply the comprehensive preventive measures until treatment and vac vaccine becomes available. Thank you. Dr. Park, thank you so much for your perspective. I think that was very insightful on, on your, your basically your uh, estimation of what is actually happening on the ground. Uh, let's turn to Scott Snyder now. Thanks to USIP for putting this on uh, and inviting me. And, and the question I really want to dig into is, you know, what is the impact of quarantine um, on North Korea as opposed to sanctions? Because North Korea's uh, typical response uh, to public health pandemic crises in the past has been uh, to pursue uh, a quarantine to shut down borders to prevent the infiltration of negative global influences. And yet we also have the sanctions regime in place. And I think that there is one critical difference between sanctions and quarantine, and that is sanctions is externally imposed, while the quarantine uh, by North Korea, uh, its initial response to the COVID-19 crisis was self-imposed. Uh, and in many respects, uh, this decision highlights, uh, I think, the fundamental political challenge uh, that North Korea has been dealing with now for some years. And that is, um, how do you pursue um, uh, political isolation in a context where you're becoming more economically interdependent, in particular with the Chinese economy? Uh, and so the, the challenge related to quarantine uh, it, is that it cuts off flows that have become increasingly important uh, to North Korea's economy uh, despite the imposition of sanctions. Uh, and I think the critical questions uh, in terms of political impact uh, of quarantine on North Korea are gonna be duration and the ability of North Korea to manage the flow of goods while continuing to, to restrict the flow of people. Uh, now, what are the impacts in terms of North Korea's internal economy uh, of a decision to quarantine? Well, one 
is it increases scarcity of goods. Uh, and scarcity of goods in North Korea increases internal dependency on the leadership uh, and on uh, entities that are close to the leadership. Uh, it's a distortion of the regular market activities that are going on in North Korea uh, that help to provide uh, needs. Uh, but uh, scarcity, I think, also um, indirectly serves the state's desire to reassert centralized economic control over distribution and availability of goods by winnowing those who are successful independent of regime permission. Um, but quarantine also can't last forever. North Korea needs goods to come in and out. Uh, a second impact, I think, uh, has been uh, the financial impact on North Korea uh, that is occurring as a result of the cutoff of Chinese tourism into North Korea, which has been a big revenue earner for North Korea um, uh, through 2019. Uh, and so that's something to watch, uh, the possibility that quarantine could have an outsized financial impact on North Korea disproportionate to any impact that uh, uh, sanctions uh, may have had uh, because it deprives North Korea of a release valve that had been operating with China as a means by which to reduce uh, the impact of sanctions. Um, in terms of North Korea's ability to defend itself from the public health impact of COVID-19, we all know that North Korea's public health system is uh, vulnerable, uh, but we also have to ask the question, well, what is the likely impact of uh, COVID-19 transmission uh, into North Korea. And we really don't know uh, whether, I, I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, uh, lower uh, classes within North Korea are gonna be more vulnerable because of the impact of poverty uh, and also because of the likelihood that they already have underlying health conditions, uh, but it can also uh, have an impact on elites. Uh, and I think that one area to watch is whether or not we see evidence of uh, impact on elites uh, in North Korea uh, from COVID-19. Uh, and so far, it's hard to say that there have been major impacts. Uh, the fact that the SPA uh, has gone on over the weekend, uh, apparently without social distancing, uh, sends a signal uh, that North Korea is uh, going on as normal. Uh, but I think that it also raises an interesting question that we'll have to wait a few weeks uh, to see as to whether or not uh, even that decision uh, might have impacts uh, on elites. And then the last question I wanted to address is really the, the issue of um, uh, sanctions uh, relaxation. Uh, uh, on North Korea. And we already, as Keith has mentioned, um, uh, the U.S. has already made offers for humanitarian assistance. Uh, uh, North Korea is working to some extent with the WHO. But I think it's pretty clear, maybe the big lesson from the famine of the 1990s for North Korea uh, is that decisions to allow in international assistance uh, also uh, come with perceptions of vulnerability. And at this moment, I think that what North Korea does not want to do is to re reveal any sense of vulnerability uh, internally or externally. 
Uh, and so as a result, uh, I think that uh, it's likely that only in the event that the North Korean system is completely overwhelmed uh, that we'll actually see uh, North Korea responding uh, actively uh, to um, and positively to offers of international assistance. And I'll stop there. Scott, thank you so much for uh, that political perspective. Um, I wanna give a reminder for those of you joining online that we are taking questions throughout the webcast and we've already received uh, several so far. Uh, if you wanna ask a question, uh, make sure you're logged into YouTube um, and you can uh, type a question in the chat box, make sure you identify your name as well as your affiliation. Uh, let's move on to Dave Maxwell who will provide uh, uh, some thoughts on the military readiness perspective. Uh, good morning and thank you to USIP and Frank and the team for, uh, for having us and to uh, my fellow panel members. Um, you know, Dr. Park painted a very optimistic view, uh, which I hope, uh, I hope is what uh, comes true, but I think it illustrates, you know, the paradox of uh, North Korea and it will, if, if his view comes true, uh, it's likely the draconian population resources control measures and the, the inhumane security system that uh, exists in North Korea will probably have made the biggest contribution to uh, preventing and mitigating uh, an outbreak. Uh, but as a military planner, I'm a worst case kind of guy. And so I, uh, my fear is that a coronavirus outbreak uh, in North Korea uh, could have devastating effects on the Korean people, uh, on the military, and on the regime elite, uh, which can lead to internal instability for the regime, uh, which of course will have dangerous consequences uh, for the ROC-US uh, alliance. I'm just going to touch on three points, uh, conditions in the North, the impact on regime decision-making, and why we need to prepare for contingencies, uh, and of course, hope they don't happen. Uh, I think that the conditions could surpass the arduous march in the Great Famine of 94 to 96. Uh, again, worst case, uh, that uh, we, we've got to consider that. Uh, and of course, the North was saved 97 to uh, 2007 with the sunshine policy, the transfer of billions of dollars into North Korea and of course the growth of the markets. And I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of stifling of market activity now, which has been one of the safety valves. Uh, so I think it could be worse. But a widespread outbreak is gonna influence the decision-making of Kim Jong-un. And everybody's kind of touched on this. They're trying to, uh, you know, they're not transparent with information. Uh, they're presenting a, a stiff upper lip to the outside world. Uh, you know, the use of provocations as we've seen uh, today uh, is really probably designed to send the signal of their strength uh, and, and ability. Uh, and, but we just don't know what is happening. Uh, but if there is an outbreak, uh, particularly within the military, and of course we've seen unconfirmed reports of 200 soldiers dying. Uh, this weekend we saw reports of four military doctors uh, supposedly uh, uh, perishing because of corona -like, uh, coronavirus-like symptoms. Uh, even though these are unconfirmed reports, uh, we need to, uh, uh, to assess them and we need to take them seriously. Uh, so how should the, the U.S. alliance respond? Uh, you know, first, I think that Kim and Trump are both going to try to protect uh, President Trump's unconventional experimental top-down and pen pal diplomacy. You know, I think that, I think they both want to do that. Uh, but the problem is, you know, the unknown and whether the coronavirus will create those conditions uh, for instability uh, and the worst case regime collapse. Now, during contingency planning in the 1990s, when we were really looking at, uh, at this problem, we defined uh, instability and regime collapse arising out of two conditions. 
One, the inability of the Korean Workers Party to govern uh, the entire territory within the North, you know, centrally from Pyongyang, combined with the loss of coherency of the North Korean People's Army, uh, and of course, then support of the army for the regime. You know, when those two conditions occur, uh, that, that is really what can lead to regime instability and of course, ultimately collapse. And as I said, in the 90s, it didn't occur. And it didn't occur because of outside aid and because of the growth of market activities. And of course, we never predicted when North Korea would, would become unstable and, and uh, collapse. But if it does, uh, I think it's going to be catastrophic. And we're going to see a humanitarian disaster inside North Korea that will far surpass the arduous march. Um, you know, we can see refugees, we can see refugees going to China, to South Korea, even Japan by, uh, by sea. And of course, the other factor within all this is the massive amounts of weapons of mass destruction inside North Korea, which poses a real threat to the South and to the region. Uh, and so in, in the midst of instability and, and collapse, we face a very complex uh, situation and uh, one which we must be prepared for. Um, it, it really demands that policymakers and strategists and military planners be on guard to look at these indicators, hope for the best, like Dr. Park is saying, but we must plan for the worst, uh, the worst case, uh, and, uh, and hopefully we never have to execute that. You know, Sun Tzu said, uh, do not assume the enemy will not attack, make yourself invincible. Uh, as we've done planning for instability and collapse over, over the years, our corollary was, do not assume the Kim family regime will not become unstable and not collapse, but prepare your contingency plans. And I think that that's what we really have to do is uh, prepare for the contingencies uh, because, um, you know, as everybody has said, we really don't know what's going on inside North Korea. Uh, we hope for the best case, uh, but if the worst case happens, uh, we need to be prepared. And so that's why I think we need to, uh, to dust off the contingency plans and keep a close watch on what's happening. Thank you, Frank. David, thank you so much. That was very helpful to take a, take a look at what could be a worst case scenario. Uh, and let's wrap it up now, turning to Jessica to focus on uh, how we can cooperate um, on anti-COVID efforts. Great, thank you, Frank, for organizing this and for having me on. Um, so I wanna take a look at what I think is uh, important for all of us here uh, in Washington, uh, which is the context of US national security interests um, and, and COVID-19 uh, and how that fits uh, together. So I think you know, much more uh, can be done uh, to ensure that our policies, uh, US policies are effective uh, in achieving our strategic interests uh, in the region, uh, which include preventing COVID-19 from spreading inside North Korea. So the ongoing diplomatic stalemate, as everyone alluded to just now, uh, between the United States and North Korea is a major challenge. Uh, and I think something that we uh, in, here in Washington have to uh, assess very carefully in the context of the global pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 shows that um, it's quite dangerous, uh, you know, where we are right now in terms of the status quo uh, because of the overwhelming number of uh, lives that are at stake, uh, particularly below the 38th parallel, uh, where U.S. troops and obviously uh, our ally South Korea uh, reside. Um, as David mentioned earlier today, North Korea tested another missile test, which is its fifth uh, this month, and uh, it was likely timed in order to sort of provoke a reaction uh, from South Korea, whose legislative election is today. Uh, and comes the day before uh, the birthday of the country's founding president, Kim Il-sung. And so the, 
as the United States continues to sanction Pyongyang, North Korea uh, is advancing its nuclear and missile technology, uh, which is incidentally opposite of what our sanctions are supposed to achieve uh, and greatly adding to uh, an already volatile situation with the pandemic. So there are a couple of things that we know. One, more ballistic missile tests by Pyongyang means that it's improving its technical capabilities, right? Number two, we know that inter-Korea cooperation could potentially be life-saving if there is adequate monitoring of distribution of aid and sustained access to various high-risk parts of North Korea. Inter-Korea cooperation is also the key toward a more stable Korean peninsula over the long run. Fortunately, South Korean government seems interested in aiding North Korea if it were asked. Its Prime Minister, Chung Se-yeon, has stated that if North Korea requested help in countering COVID-19, um, that South Korea will, quote, positively review it, which is a good sign. So I think President Trump should welcome South Korea's assistance, um, willingness to assist uh, by calling for an exemption of certain UN sanctions that have prevented inter-Korea cooperation to date. It's really not clear yet uh, which specific UN sanctions would need to be lifted for a better flow of medical aid to accurately diagnose and contain the likely spread of the pandemic inside North Korea, but they could include sanctions related to transportation or scientific cooperation. What is clear to me is that US Congress has a vital role to play. It should hold public hearings on the impact of the US and UN sanctions on North Korea's ability to respond to COVID-19. It should ask officials from State Department, Treasury Department, Defense Department, as well as Center for Disease Con uh, Control and the World Health Organization to assess the risks of COVID-19 in the Korean Peninsula and its implication for regional stability. Finally, I think it's really clear to us that the longer the United States pursues a policy of maximum isolation on North Korea, the more Pyongyang will have no choice but to rely on China, which has been its long-term uh, long trading partner, as well as the biggest source of energy and food aid. And a more security-independent North Korea would likely be less hostile to the United States seeking to contribute to greater balance and stability in the region. So I think the global pandemic is showing that the world is becoming smaller and more interesting connected and it's forcing countries to coordinate and share data in real time whether it is among allies competitors or adversaries there's an old korean proverb which means it's often difficult to see what's right in front of your face and south korea has become adroit in addressing the COVID crisis uh, and it's become a model nation by which other countries are drawing lessons north korea should let south korea and the international community in in order to assess its public health and the U.S. should take this opportunity to pursue more aggressive diplomacy with North Korea in partnership with South Korea, which ultimately serves the United States interests. I think finally, everyone uh, needs to think outside of the box in order to uh, get, find our way out of the global pandemic. Uh, it's clear that uh, COVID-19 has uh, raised a, a series of questions here in Washington about the sustainability and durability of our military spending uh, and many aspects of our federal budget that has uh, created uh, uncertainty in terms of addressing the crisis here at home. And so I hope this crisis will present an opportunity as we think about ways to restart uh, diplomacy with North Korea. Jessica, thank you so much for the reminder that there's a lot more that can be done uh, in the COVID response efforts and particularly in terms of how the U.S. could be providing assistance. So uh, at this point, we'll now turn over to the Q&A session. Um, a reminder to those online that you can ask questions by uh, going uh, logging on to YouTube uh, and typing your question into the chat box. We've already received uh, several questions so far. Um, please make sure you identify your name and affiliation. And I'll ask the speakers um, 
when I ask a question, I'll direct it uh, initially to uh, an individual, and then please make sure to keep your responses brief so that we can try to get through as many questions as possible. So the first question and is kind of asked by several people, but I'll attribute this one to Unjung Cho from the Voice of America. Uh, different speakers, uh, Dr. Park, you talked about um, uh, how effective North Korea has been in terms of uh, its quarantine and social distancing measures and the travel bans. Uh, and then the other side of the equation, uh, Dave, you talked about the potential for a worst case scenario. So the question from Unjung Cho really is, you know, how, um, how can we anticipate um, whether there is uh, an actual crisis in North Korea? And what are some of the instability or uh, other factors that would let us know that it's getting out of hand in North Korea? So let me first turn to Dr. Park. Yeah, so um, North Korea, when things get bad, uh, they do ask for help. In fact, they did ask for help in the middle of February officially to all of their international partners to, uh, at least for diagnostic kits, PPEs and things like that. So if there's an outbreak and there's a true crisis, I, 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 I would think that the North Koreans will uh, reach out for help and that's how we'll know. Okay, uh, let's turn to Dave. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's already uh, signs of, of, uh, of uh, problems within the military. And I think uh, it was just announced that uh, Kim Jong-un has created a new uh, military guidance department uh, I think a fourth chain of control for the military. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing is that uh, there's fears that there, there could be a breakdown of, of military control. Uh, and so this fourth line of control, in addition to the traditional chain of command, the political officer chain, the security officer chain, and now this new, this new military guidance department that Radio Free Asia uh, reported on this weekend uh, is, is an indication that they fear a breakdown. So we want to be alert to uh, unusual military movements. We want to be alert to deprioritizing of military units. If there's an outbreak uh, within a specific core, they might be isolated. And of course, that could lead to uh, activity uh, by those military personnel that could uh, be destabilizing. Uh, and we need to, of course, uh, be alert towards military defections, uh, and which will be a strong indicator of a breakdown of these chains of control. Uh, so those are the kind of things I'll be looking for within the military uh, to indicate that there is growing instability. But I think the key is, I think Kim fears that, and he's taken aggressive action to try to prevent it. Over to you, Frank. Thank you. So this next question, uh, I will uh, turn to both Keith and Scott, and it has to do with um, the impact of the quarantine and social distancing measures on different aspects of North Korean society, but particularly the black markets and the Changmadans. Um, and this question is uh, both from, uh, again, from Hunjung Cho and Voice of America, but also Kyungnam Ko from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the South, uh, South Korea. Um, so again, what would be the impact of social distancing, especially if it's prolonged over many months on uh, different aspects of North Korean life, but particularly the Changmadans, the markets, uh, and also since Scott, you mentioned uh, that the COVID has increased uh, the scarcity of goods. How do we know that this is true, especially since uh, it looks like the commodity prices have uh, stayed the same, although there was an increase in February in the prices, but it looks like it's kind of gotten back to normal. So let me first turn to Keith uh, to address this question. Well, depending, depending upon uh, how long the COVID-19 situation continues uh, inside North Korea, obviously 
uh, there would be an impact on life as a whole. Uh, look at the United States. Uh, it's impossible, though, to predict uh, what might or not might or might not become the reality. I imagine that those involved in trading in North Korea uh, would find themselves very creative and continue trading, uh, albeit uh, in a different form. And Scott. To Chiang Mai Dong, you know, we really don't know exactly uh, what the impact is. You know, it's highly unlikely that there's been an ordered stay at home shutdown that has had an impact on those markets. But instead, you can imagine that the effect of uh, the quarantine would be essentially shut down availability of goods uh, in those markets. Uh, and that is going to decrease the likelihood of transmission. Uh, and then I think the other aspect is that, um, you know, the two um, uh, characteristics of North Korean leadership uh, that are most uh, valuable in this uh, context of dealing with COVID-19. One is the ability to quarantine, uh, and the other is the ability to evade sanctions. And so, you know, my guess is that where there is scarcity, there will also be, for a price, an ability to uh, find ways to open up uh, avenues to get uh, the goods that are most necessary. Uh, from China, despite uh, the reports of quarantine. Great, thank you so much. Uh, next question is from Benjamin Madnick at the Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, it's a fairly broad question, so you can take it for uh, uh, however you wanna interpret it, but basically what effects will COVID-19 have on regional security, uh, particularly in regards to the Korean Peninsula? Uh, here, I'll turn uh, again to Scott, and, and then maybe also have Jessica chime in. So let's first uh, turn to Scott. Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Frank. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that it's really way too early to be able to uh, definitively assess what the impact uh, of COVID-19 is going to be. Uh, it's a dynamic situation. Uh, we've already seen over the course of the past two to three months uh, a situation where there were concerns about China being overwhelmed or preoccupied, and now, uh, you know, there are more concerns uh, with the U.S. There was a moment where South Korea seemed overwhelmed or preoccupied, but now it looks a little bit, uh, you know, better. And so I think that we're going to have to wait and see, you know, how this uh, kind of plays out. Uh, but uh, it also provides a certain moment of potential. Um, opportunity or risk uh, for unexpected developments to occur. And I think that's probably the most troubling aspect of it uh, is uh, that in the context of a pandemic situation, uh, it just further erodes some of the um, institutional and structural factors uh, that might otherwise be counted on to inhibit the risk uh, or unintended consequences of potential conflict. Thank you so much, Scott. Uh, and uh, I apologize for turning right back to you after you were previously speaking. I know it's hard to prepare for back-to-back -back questions, but I know you're a veteran of this process, so uh, that's why I know you could handle that. Uh, Jessica, let's turn to you. Sure. Um, well, I think uh, you know, I agree with Scott uh, that you know, the, the most difficult uh, part of analyzing this situation is all the unknowns. 
and uh, the what ifs uh, and things that we don't necessarily anticipate or have the capacity to uh, rapidly respond to. Um, I think it's also interesting that uh, this pandemic has raised uh, questions uh, here in Washington about you know, what we can do uh, to make it a little bit easier uh, for humanitarian workers who are really the frontline workers, um, you know, that are being dispatched to, uh, you know, assist uh, all over the world, uh, even in uh, North Korea, uh, if, you know, if, if there's more relaxation of entry uh, and, you know, greater trust. Um, and of course, inspection, which I think is a vital part of any medical assistance that the international community can provide. Uh, but, you know, I just want to point out that I was heartened to see uh, that Senator Markey and Congressman Levin uh, introduced uh, plans to introduce a bill, uh, as they announced yesterday, um, called uh, Enhancing North Korea Humanitarian Assistance Act uh, that would help uh, the delivery of life-saving aid uh, by NGOs uh, to the people of North Korea. And this is, you know, in direct response to COVID-19, as well as other uh, you know, uh, you know, challenges that I think uh, NGO community uh, has faced, uh, you know, in the context of the sanctions regime. So, you know, I hope that uh, the COVID-19, uh, you know, crisis uh, is an opportunity for all of us to reflect uh, on the, the state uh, of U.S.-North Korea relations that, um, you know, frankly, uh, you know, is, is, is very uh, uh, volatile. Um, and, you know, as David mentioned, there's been high-level diplomacy between uh, the President uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un, but uh, not a lot else going on in the meantime. So there's a lot of uncertainty uh, in the process right now, and this could be a moment in which um, there are some more direct communications and less of sort of the hardwired, uh, you know, uh, animosity and uh, hostility that is ingrained in the relationship um, to uh, make room uh, for some practical steps. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, Dave, you wanted to chime in on, on the security impacts question. Yes, I think uh, this is very, very important. I think COVID-19 is, the coronavirus is having an impact on, on readiness of military units. Uh, and I think it's important to look at the different ways that the regional actors have, have uh, reacted to this. Uh, you know, we had reports that North Korea did lock down their military for 30 days, uh, and, uh, but uh, they've obviously resumed operations. They completed their winter training cycle, uh, and you know, up to today, they're conducting uh, uh, missile, cruise missile tests uh, and the like. Uh, the US and South Korea pretty much shut down you know, to try to defend against it. South Korean militaries had a, a good number of infected, but very small number relatively, uh, and I think uh, USFK has about 22 uh, military and civilians and, and uh, uh, contract workers uh, have been affected, but we've stopped exercises uh, and the like. Uh, you know, China has uh, continued operations, uh, but from a US perspective, uh, we are looking at this, you know, as a force protection issue, protect the force. Uh, but uh, we now have four aircraft carriers that have outbreaks on it. You know, we've steamed one into port and have had a big uh, controversial uh, uh, you know, a lot of controversy about the relief of the captain. I think we have to, from a military perspective, this has to be a rehearsal for biological warfare. I know that's very provocative, but we have to learn to fight through these pandemics. Uh, stopping all military operations, uh, while we want to protect the force, it does, of course, decline readiness, but it makes us vulnerable. And I think that uh, we have a, you know, a high level of desire to protect our force, South Korea, the US, Japan, uh, but North Korea and China uh, are much less risk averse when it comes to military operations. And so I think we need to consider that in terms of regional security. And I'll stop there. Thank you, Dave. 
Uh, so we have a lot of questions teed up, uh, but I want to take the moderator's prerogative to ask one of my own. Uh, and this will be addressed to Key and Jessica. And it has to do with the question of sanctions relief. So on one hand, uh, we know that the UN Security Council has been providing sanctions exemptions to international uh, NGOs uh, to provide assistance related to COVID response efforts. On the other hand, there have also been calls uh, most prominently from uh, uh, Michelle Bachelet, the, the UN High Commissioner of Human Rights, on the need for providing sanctions relief to North Korea, uh, particularly in this pandemic period. So do we need additional sanctions relief, even broader sanctions relief, uh, despite the fact that there are sanctions exemptions to these international NGOs uh, related to COVID? So I'll turn to Dr. Park first and then Jessica as well. Yeah, great question, Frank. Um, Yes, these sanctions, uh, uh, in theory, exempt humanitarian assistance. Uh, they're all written that way. But in, in practice, it's anything but that. Uh, the evidence is uh, the, the bill that the Senator Markey and Levin introduced specifically addressed this, uh, the hurdles that humanitarian organizations have to go through. It's a complex issue. So there is already an underlying disgruntlement and, and criticism of the mechanism for humanitarian exemptions under current sanctions regime. You add the international public health emergency aspect of COVID-19, then the exemptions process makes no sense at all. And if we fail to act on trying to broaden the humanitarian corridor and roll back some of the sanctions, I think you'll see what's happening now, which is countries like Russia and China basically not seeking exemptions and providing assistance directly. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are, um, th there's a lot of uh, existing literature and studies that show that there are um, impact uh, beyond sort of the immediate ones that uh, Keith just uh, laid out. You know, there, it's taboo uh, to conduct any financial transactions with any North Korean entities. Uh, no bank uh, wants to be scrutinized or pe penalized uh, or misunderstood, uh, uh, you know, for any kind of transaction. So I think you know, on, on the most practical level, even if it's, you know, say the laptop uh, that, you know, recently has been announced as um, you know, uh, exempt, uh, you know, that medical professional humanitarian workers can bring that into North Korea uh, for the purpose of giving aid. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, groups have to uh, be uh, ultra cautious uh, and deal with wary uh, banks that really don't want to have any connection and, or be traced back to any transactions uh, that you know connect to North Korea. I think is deeply troubling. Uh, you know, I think you know I welcome everyone uh, to read uh, the Congressional Research Service's reports on the complexities of uh, the U.S. and U.N. sanctions. It's a very thick report, uh, one that's publicly available. Uh, that Diane Rennick has written, uh, you know, on over the years. And, you know, that just, I think, uh, you know, shows that these sanctions are enormously complex. They are interwoven uh, and very difficult to navigate. Um, what an NGO would have to have, uh, I think, a lot of staff resources and, and lawyers to help navigate that complex system. So it seems to me like, even though, as, you know, uh, Key uh, mentioned, uh, sanctions are not supposed to harm or impede humanitarian aid, uh, the practical uh, effect uh, of these sanctions uh, are anything but. I would just add that this is, you know, I think also, you know, beyond the strategic and, and other uh, considerations, it's a moral issue, right? Um, the Pope has recently come out and said, you know, we should not be sanctioning countries in this time of uh, global pandemic. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, during this time of global crisis, uh, what is the appropriate response? Uh, how can we save lives? 
uh, and not, you know, resort to sort of, well, it's, it's, you know, we, let's just do the bare minimum and see, see what happens and, you know, figure things out uh, when it might be too late. Uh, so I think that's why these questions about uh, what sort of sanctions are getting in the way uh, and how to practically respond to some of these hurdles uh, is important. Okay, I saw uh, Dave, you had your finger up, so you want to chime in very quickly. Yes, I just want to respond to that. Uh, you know, and I agree, you know, saving lives is important. And, uh, you know, but we put a lot of blame on ourselves for the sanctions, the UN and, and US sanctions. But I think we have to remember that all of this is a result of policy decisions that Kim Jong-un is making, has made, and the Kim family regime has made through the years. Uh, you know, I think he bears much responsibility uh, for the situation in North Korea. Uh, you know, he could change his behavior. He could accept humanitarian assistance. He could stop his nuclear program, his missile program, his illicit activities around the world, uh, the cyber attacks, and of course, the uh, human rights violations, you know, outlined in the 2014 UN Commission of Inquiry that are uh, really crimes against humanity, as they call them. So I think, you know, I, I agree that uh, I, I certainly want to save lives, but Kim Jong-un, we shouldn't forget how much responsibility Kim Jong-un bears uh, for this problem. And, uh, and I think we, we need to keep that in mind. Thank you. Thank you. So um, we have uh, maybe say uh, seven minutes left. And so I wanna to try to go to these questions as, much, questions as much as we can. We have next one from Mark Manning of the Congressional Research Service. Um, He's asking about testing kits. Uh, we heard reports about Russia providing testing kits, um, but are there any other signs that the North Korean government is proactively acquiring uh, medical supplies, personal pr uh, protective equipment, ventilators that they may need in the future? Uh, so let me turn to Keith uh, and then Dr. Park. In terms of the future and what North Korea is doing now, in a proactive sense, I, I really don't know. As has been mentioned, uh, North Korea have, has reached out to a number of other countries related to the present situation, uh, Southeast Asia, Russia, China, and so on. Um, but Frank, for just a moment, I want to go back to sanctions. Uh, Key and Jessica provided a great outline of the situation uh, as it has been. I think it's also important, though, to, to give additional perspective in that uh, in recent weeks and months, uh, the Treasury Department, the State Department, have shown sensitivity to the COVID-19 situation inside North Korea. We've seen uh, the OFAC uh, take a look at um, uh, offering the or changing regs so that laptops can get into North Korea, which is important for NGO workers. Um, we look at the uh, exemptions process at the 1718 committee uh, at the United Nations. Uh, in, this, in this particular situation, there is now a three-day turnaround possibility uh, once exemption requests are, are applied for. So everything that has been shared is accurate, I believe, in terms of sanctions overall, but I did want to point out that there is sensitivity presently uh, to North Korea by the United States uh, related to the COVID-19 situation. Thank you. Let's turn to uh, Dr. Park. So yeah, I want to echo what Frank, I mean, I'm sorry, Keith said, the US government, the COVID-19 situation, their uh, position and, and, and uh, is, is, is one of cooperation, international cooperation in, a, in the global health security. So, so they have followed through on, on, on their uh, um, 
statements, which is they are expeditiously facilitating uh, sanctions exemptions uh, in two days, sometimes as, as fast as one day. Uh, so they are, I think, doing uh, what they can within the, uh, the, 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 the structure of the sanctions regime. Um, as far as what's happening and getting equipment and supplies to North Korea, uh, North Korea is actively trying to get those supplies and the entire, entire effort is being coordinated through the UN resident coordinator. Uh, and it's, it's it, so, yeah, and then Keith knows a lot more about this than I do, but yeah, it, they, they are asking and they are acquiring. Okay, uh, next question. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of combining questions at this point um, because uh, there's still a lot of questions teed up, but this one has been asked several times in multiple different ways. I'll ask it to Keith and Keith, but it, this addresses the question, uh, and this one, uh, one of the uh, questioners is from Sandra Fahey. Uh, she's asking about the differential risks uh, within the North Korean population uh, from the COVID. So you have uh, the military, you have those in the remote populations, you have the elites, uh, the most vulnerable populations. How does COVID impact different sections and sectors of the North Korean population? So let me turn to Dr. Park first. Yeah, so we saw in the US, uh, the COVID-19 disproportionately affects the minorities, the African-Americans, right? And I would expect the same thing to happen in other countries, including North Korea, which is the marginalized and the most vulnerable population will be will bear the brunt of it, not just because of the medical aspects, the public health aspects, but the treatment or the cure uh, is is worse than the disease. Because remember, they're shutting down the border for these trade with with China, smuggling operations, and things like that. These things have a way of directly impacting the livelihood of the most uh, the lower part of the socioeconomic class in North Korea. So we have to be mindful. Uh, the vulnerable population are going to bear the brunt of this. Yes, I agree with um, what, what Key just said. Uh, Sandra, this is an important question, obviously. When you consider North Korea, uh, you know, so much of the news coverage, uh, so much of what has been said about COVID-19 probably relates to Pyongyang, probably relates to the elites, uh, the immediate situation around the capital. Uh, what about the countryside? Uh, what about uh, the people in the rural areas? Uh, what about those who uh, are in the prisons, uh, how will they be impacted uh, by this disease? So uh, your, your question is important, uh, but it raises many more questions and the reality that uh, this disease does not discriminate. All right, next question. Uh, and this next question has been received several times, but I'll attribute it to Connie Lee from Voice of America. And this has to do with the meaning of the recent missile tests, the, the cruise uh, missile tests um, that uh, North Korea conducted, I think just last night, uh, especially during this time frame where we have the South Korean elections coming up as well as the COVID crisis. And I'll, I'll turn to Dave first and then Scott. Well, I think uh, the, you know, there are numbers of interpretations of these. Obviously we look to the messaging aspect of, of this. Uh, you know, some could interpret this as the old northern wind, although I don't think that uh, the North really wants the conservatives to win the election. Uh, so, you know, it's really, it could be interpreted as uh, a provocation to demonstrate strength, both internally and externally. Uh, it could be, uh, and what I think is most likely is the continued development of their military capabilities. Their priority remains on building their military capabilities, and these are enhanced warfighting capabilities uh, that will both support warfighting, but also support blackmail diplomacy. 
the use of provocations and increased tensions to gain political and economic concessions. Uh, and then of course, lastly, they're probably not gonna have a big military celebration uh, for Kim Il-sung's birthday. So this also could be uh, an attempt to, uh, to show off its military, again, internally and externally uh, in, uh, you know, in, in support of uh, any celebration for Kim Il-sung's birthday. Thank you, let's turn to Scott. Let's turn to Scott. Uh, my, my own view is that the template was set by the uh, December party plenum uh, and uh, that the focus is on uh, securing the capacity to, uh, to focus on security first, show that uh, North Korea is a strong state, uh, resist any perceptions of vulnerability, and uh, suggest that uh, it's business as usual in North Korea. If I could just go back uh, on the issue of uh, differential impact of the health situation in North Korea, I think that we know that outside of Pyongyang, there simply will not be equipment available uh, to any individual who potentially has this virus. And so I just want to emphasize you know, that that is uh, a situation of extreme risk, uh, especially for people outside of Pyongyang. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, so unfortunately, we are running out of time. So uh, I will ask one more question. I, there are many more questions that were asked. Uh, we just don't have time to get to them. So my apologies. Uh, but the last question will go to Scott and Jessica. Uh, and this is a broad question about diplomacy. This comes from uh, Annika Betancourt at Brookings. Are USDPRK talks dead? And does the COVID uh, situation uh, have any potential for um, uh, spurring diplomacy again. So let me first turn to Scott on this question. Well, I believe that the North Korean default position from the beginning of the year is that they're um, not really looking to engage in negotiations unless the U.S. makes a major concession. Uh, and I think that what we are, uh, you know, looking to see is whether or not the situation inside North Korea, the impact of COVID-19, might actually uh, lead uh, the leadership to change its own calculation uh, under those circumstances and possibly use uh, the humanitarian situation as a pretext or as uh, a way of reaching out to negotiate with the US uh, while hiding its own vulnerability. Great, let's turn to Jessica. Well, I, um, I think there are uh, some critical factors that could uh, impede uh, progress in talks uh, at this point, uh, including the upcoming presidential election uh, here in the United States, uh, as well as just the amount of energy that it is taking to address COVID-19 uh, throughout the world. Uh, and so uh, there, there are reasons to uh, be pessimistic in uh, direct bilateral talks resuming uh, between Washington and Pyongyang. But, uh, as I alluded to in a piece that I wrote for the Quincy Institute, uh, you know, I do see this as an opportunity as well. Uh, and I think uh, we need to always be, uh, you know, measured uh, and cautious, but also, uh, you know, show policymakers uh, a realm of possibility of, of, you know, steps that they can take to really break uh, the stalemate and this deadlock that has persisted uh, for, for months. Um, and so I hope that uh, this pandemic, uh, you know, will create some sense of urgency that the status quo uh, isn't working um, and that uh, we need to try uh, something new. 
Jessica, thank you so much. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have. Um, I wanna thank all the speakers for sharing their time and their insights. Uh, I also wanna thank my colleagues, uh, Paul Lee, uh, the, uh, Matt Lulich from the AV team and Blaine Theodoros from the events team for helping put this webcast together. And thank you to all for joining us for this webcast. Uh, I hope we will address most of your questions uh, and stay tuned for additional events from USIP. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.